But I do believe that the truth lies with British farming because we've done it the same method for thousands of years um, and we know what we're doing. But sadly, like British coal, we're being run down. And um, it means that we lose more control of our country if we don't have control of our food. Wonderful. So um, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Liz Webster from Save British Farming. Uh, Liz, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks very much for asking me on. Yeah, no problem. Um, so we're here to talk about about farming, um, a bit about Brexit, and and um, probably a lot about lots of other things. But we'll get into those later. <laughs> um, so I I really wanted to actually start um, with uh, why you wanted to why you got into farming, like why your family um, owns a farm, or or like what farming means to you, and just sort of start from there. Yeah, I mean my. My husband was born here. His family had farmed forever and um, for generations back. Um, so, and from my perspective, uh, I've got a slightly unusual background, but essentially my family have always been involved in food um, production of some sort. My, you know, on one side of my family, my, my, grand, my grandparents going back were master bakers and confectioners, uh, mixed with, believe it or not, a traveling fairground background um, on the other side. And so my, my maternal grandfather um, was a cook in the RAF during the war and he was posted to India. And when he came back, he started a business which was producing food in fairgrounds. That's how my parents met. <laughs> and um, so um, on my father's side, uh, German, Jewish refugees and Irish uh, potato famine survivors <laughs> so food has always been very central to my family side I come from Wales we experience a lot more war damage um, than than where I live now in in the heart of, of of Wiltshire and and I think that that's really always been with me because my grandfather in particular um, indoctrinated me <laughs> I've still got their Russian books and um, so I sort of always have been awake to food food security, food supply, and, you know, the importance to, to health around food. So, um, so Brexit immediately triggered me on food. It was kind of like, well, forget all the political arguments. You know, we need Europe for food. I always understood that. And so that's what, what triggered me. Mm. Okay, well, that's a great place to start. So um, when you talk about needing Europe for food, so um, I can already hear Brexiteers in my ear saying, well, you know, can't we just make all our food here? So, like, why is it that we need Europe for food? Well, we could have potentially create, um, produced a lot more food here. But the, the, this is the dilemma of Brexit. If, if they'd wanted Brexit to work um, in terms of the vision, the unicorn vision, what they ought to have done was put money into food production in Britain. And the Netherlands shows you that that is possible. You know, the Netherlands produces, is one of the largest um, exporters of food in the world. It's a lot smaller country than Britain and more ten densely populated. Um, but, um, and they've got a similar climate to us and all the rest of it, but they've put money into food production. And that has not happened in Britain. There's never been... Um, particularly in modern times, you know, since the 80s, there hasn't been a belief in the need to produce food because the power has gone into the supermarkets post-Margaret Thatcher. The belief was that, oh, the supermarkets can sort it all out because they can buy everything that they need and they're the, they're the people to do the job. But everybody forgets that it's all very well having somebody as a middle man as the supermarkets are on food. The food has to come from somewhere and it comes from farms. The majority of our food has come from Britain and Europe. Yes, some of it comes from further afield, but, and more is coming from further afield, actually, since Brexit. But the, the lessons of the war are that, especially with climate change and geopolitics and war, that we need a certain amount of food that's, um, that's domestically produced. It means we've got more control of prices um, and we've got control of the supply. But also it tastes better. You know, apples um, flown in from the other side of the world 
will be, uh, uh, they'll have more preservatives in them and they will be less fresh. So they're not, they're not going to taste as good as a, a, an apple which comes locally. So, um, so there's all of those, those issues around that. Um, but Brexit is doing exactly what we thought it would do, but worse and quicker. The, the impact is quicker because of COVID and because of the Ukraine war. So the damage has been extensive. The failure to protect our food industry here and our food production is leaving us very in a very vulnerable position. Mm. Okay, so um, in terms of what we could have done, so say like, let's take, take us back to, to like the 80s, um, and you talked about um, the amount of investment that Holland have made in their in their food production in their farming. Because yeah, I'm I, I'm always blown away when when I find out that Holland are the most efficient and productive farmers on the planet. It's it's amazing. Um, so what are we or what have we failed to invest in that would have changed that for for Britain or what what have Holland done differently than than we than we, than we have. Well, they've got more intensive farming systems. They've got more greenhouses. Um, and, um, you know, so they produce it. It's quite simple. If you've got less land and you need to produce more food, then you've got to find ways of intensifying. Um, and it's not necessarily sustainable or climate friendly. But, you know, it's without... And I would argue this. I mean, if you look at what happened in Sri Lanka a couple of years ago, they decided to change their farming model and get rid of fertilizer, chemical fertilizer, in a green, a bid to be green. And what happened was, you know, there wasn't enough food, and then they, the, the, the island ended up rioting. And, and that is not good for the environment, <laughs> to have people stampeding all over the place, being hungry and rioting, is, is, is not good. So um, there has to be... a, a a good approach to food. And, and the reason that it's worked with Europe is we've got a difficult climate in the north and spreading your uh, food security across the continent of Europe only makes sense because, of course, they've got better weather down south and they can produce tomatoes outside for longer than we can in a greenhouse. So relying on the Netherlands model for food production is is good in some ways, it's been good for their economy and good for their self-sufficiency, but equally it's, it's not great for the environment because you've got intensive food production, which, which causes problems with waste management and, and all, all the rest of it. But that is nothing compared to what they're doing in countries like China, where you've got you know, intensive pig lots of you know, multi-story pig factory. Um, and so this is the problem when you sort of obsess about standards within Europe and then think, oh, I don't like Europe because they're not producing food as well as we do. We're destroying our model only to rely on food coming in from further away, Brazil, China, Australia. And those methods are even more uncomfortable. But I guess because it's further away from us, perhaps the political fallout from that isn't as strong mm. and the marketing can be we've got at the moment australian beef now launching their australian corn-fed beef as as being better than british beef well it's not you know corn-fed um animals are, are are not better for the environment um and they're not tastier the best the best beef that you can get is grass-fed beef and um, it's best all around and that is what british beef is mm. um so it's very difficult when you've got all of these different things coming at you, feeling guilty for climate, and then you've got these big companies that shift through and they're just full of hypocritical statements. Um, and so it's very difficult to see the truth, really. Mm. Um, but I do believe that the truth lies with British farming because we've done it the same method for thousands of years um, and we know what we're doing. But sadly, like British coal, we're being run down and um, it means that we lose more control of our country if we don't have control of our food mm. yeah i couldn't i could not agree more it's um so like uh, a couple of years ago i read a fantastic book um by oh uh, she's gonna kill me if i forget her name the book is called Cytopia, so let me just google quickly about what who, um, <laughs> who wrote it Caroline. i'm glad that's happening to you it normally happens to me i was going oh i can't remember this name yes carolyn Steele. <laughs> that's it we get 300 and 
what am I, this is 337, you get 337 episodes in, sometimes you can't remember everyone's name that you spoke to. <laughs> yeah. um, so she, she's written a lot about, about um, sort of food, food culture, farming, food supplies. Um, so her latest book was called Citopia, and she wrote one called Hungry City before, which was about um, sort of the, the supply chain architecture of how you feed a city. Um, but she she really changed the way I think about about our food production sort of pipeline and um, how how reliant we have become on on yeah a very fragile supply chain that sort of was a bit disrupted during COVID and now Brexit has thrown a lot of things into into chaos because of it. So and I know this is something you're you're very passionate about. So. Um, and it's something that I probably need clarified. So can you help me understand what it is about Brexit that's caused so much distress and um, issues for farmers in Britain? Yeah, it's actually quite simple. You know, we have sanctioned ourselves. Only Britain faces petty fogging bureaucracy and customs checks to export. Um, and the unfairness of Brexit is that they didn't um, get the borders ready in time in Britain. At the, same, the European Union got their borders and protected their market because we said we wanted to diverge. So the Europeans had to, to then say, well, we don't want to diverge, so we're going to put these checks in place so that you don't send us anything which toxifies our market. And what we did was leave the border wide open with Europe so anything coming in from the EU or anything coming in from the rest of the world via the EU, which a lot of produce does, can just come through with no checks. And it's incredibly irresponsible. It's leaving us wide open to the risk of, uh, you know, all sorts of health issues and uh, illegal smuggling and all the rest of it. Um, and now that the, with the reality of the Ukraine war causing inflation, it means that we're stuck because as soon as they bring these checks, if they brought these checks in, which they, they keep saying they're going to and then they keep delaying them, it means food shortages and more inflation. Um, and because they haven't invested in British farming, they've been putting money into farms and, and in, incentivizing us to do environmental things, not grow food, basically. It means that we, we really have made ourselves more reliant on the EU than ever before, which is, um, which a lot of Brexiteers seem to fail to understand. Um, and, you know, as I said, if we were going to do Brexit properly, what they should have done was prepare our food system to ensure that we had at least 80, 70, 80% um, self-sufficiency as we had in the 1980s. But to go into Brexit at around 50 to 60% self-sufficiency, then incentivize farmers to retire. Remember, they were, they were paying um, money to, to, to incentivize farmers to retire. And to then go into environmental schemes means that they accepted that more food was going to be imported um, from further afield. Then geopolitically, the Ukraine war has a massive impact on food production because of fertilizer, if you withdraw fertilizer, your yields more than half. So the food issue is massive globally, which is why, you know, the latest estimates were 350 million in the world are facing starvation. Nearly a, um, nearly a billion are food insecure. These numbers are scary. Um, and... Yes, we're okay in Britain, I suppose. We probably will always be able to get food. But not everybody in Britain is getting access to food even now. 11,000 were hospitalised in the last year with malnutrition. So it is a war on the poor, really. And it also means that Brexit is making more people poor. So that number will only increase. Um, and so... That's really what I come at it from, because I am a real believer in, fa in fairness and I'm a believer in the welfare state. It's worked tremendously well. And all of those stories from my grandfather before the war, when he left to go to um, India, his wife was pregnant with twins and they, she was left with five children. 
and um, and her parents' house was bombed down with parents living in the house. There was no welfare state to help them. One of the twins had a severe um, problem with, uh, you know, and she died at the age of two. There was no support, no system to support them. And my grandfather was in India. Why would anyone want to go back to a world where only the rich can afford the support of, of healthcare and social services and all of those things that we have enjoyed and lived with. All, I mean, I've had that all of my life. And most people alive have enjoyed that and don't know what my grandparents experienced. And so that is what I fight for, which I believe are actually British values. But I think people don't understand it's those that are on the altar of Brexit. And food is part of the welfare state. Having a right to food is part of the welfare state. Yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it, actually. I think you're right as well. People people don't quite realise. I think there's a bit of a romanticising of what the the 1970s and 80s were like. I think sometimes, or or like even even before that. Like I know my my mom talks about how her dad still had um, ration books um, and stuff when when she was very very young. It's and that that's that's not a world that I think anyone wants to retreat to. I think I think honestly, what happens is that. And I've talked about this in my book, um, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War. It's on screen for people. Go buy it. Um, <laughs> um, but w what's happened is that there's there's like a real, there's a, a divide in um, between the, the rich and powerful interests and politicians who campaigned for Brexit and what they viewed as what was going to, what should come from brexit as such and and in from my understanding and my research and, and what i've written in the book is like they wanted some very extreme neoliberal policies that would involve a lot of stripping back of the state um welfare services um state, like selling state-owned industries privatizing public services um and i think what most people who voted for brexit wanted um, is something far more similar to what you're articulating um, in terms of like, okay, people would say, oh, you know, why can't we have, you know, British food made here and, and like a, a food production of, of like what you said, like 80, 90% like we had in the 80s and not the system that we currently have. Um, and I think what happens then is that people feel the need to like defend their choice and then as a result, they get caught up trying to defend things that are nothing to do with what they actually viewed as, as things that could be positive from leaving the European Union. But because it's, it's, it's gone that way, because we've been so horrendously, horrendously underprepared as a result of the shockingly incompetent people that we have running our country at the minute. Um, so there's a couple of things that you said that I wanted to just go into for people who are wondering. Um, I did some quick googling while you were talking because I wasn't. Um, I just wanted to check on um, the fertilizer stuff. So um, it's around four. Uh, Belarus and Russia account for forty percent of the world's potash production, which is mm -hmm. um, one of the main three types of fertilizers. So. And I know that uh, Ukraine also produced quite a lot of it um, through nitrogen fertilizer because of natural gas. So the the I just yeah for people who are wondering about that, that's that's what yeah. Meant and the most incredible thing is is that this government didn't help keep our fertilizer plants open. We had two fertilizer plants in this country, and they asked for a loan of ten million, and they wouldn't give them the loan of the ten million. Now, when you think about the cost of the Brexit festival which was an abject failure. Um, I think it was over 100 million that cost. And they, they didn't give the uh, funding and support to keep these fertilizer plants open. So it now means that we are wholly reliant on imported fertilizers. Mostly they're coming from the States. And that is a concern because if Trump gets in and he, goes, he will go back to his protectorate ways, you know, it means that we face a, you know, a really massive problem um, and um, it, it, it's beyond irresponsible as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I can't imagine. You know, the other thing is 500 million Rishi Sunak recently gave to Tata Steel. Um, 
And it, it doesn't even involve hanging on to all of the jobs. There's still job cuts in that deal. And yet there's no funding going into food. Uh, and that, to me, makes absolutely no sense. It's almost as if they want a food crisis. But exactly the same thing happened with COVID. When you think back, all of the warnings were there about a pandemic building. And in fairness to Labour, they got everything ready for that. And the Conservatives, as soon as they came into power, destroyed everything. With, from, the, you know, from the pandemic preparedness unit to then doing the sickness report, which they, they, it still hasn't actually been um, disclosed, that report. Um, and, of course, when the pandemic hit, we all jolly well knew that we weren't prepared. We didn't even have enough PPE. And we're in the same situation with food. If Trump gets in and says, right, sorry, guys, we're not sending anything out of the States, you're getting no fertilizer, and we're still in this situation with, with Europe and not getting food from Europe, we're in a very, very fragile situation for food. Mm. Yeah, it's concerning. Do you know what's really shocking actually here? So I've just done some Googling about the fertilizer plants and every single news article that I find is blaming the rise in gas prices. Not a single one mentions the fact that they asked for a loan. It's... I think the FT probably did from memory, but um, I, I have to Google it and find it out. So it seems, no, the, you know, the, from my the, perspective, um, usually have, they do. You the... do find the FT give quite a lot of detail on these things, but um, you well, probably need to do. Well, their headline is gas prices surge triggers UK fertilizer plant closures yeah. and crop warnings. But, you know, the, the, the issue is in Spain, they've been heavily subsidizing domestic food production, which is why in Spain, their food is actually really very cheap and affordable and, and their inflation hasn't been anywhere near what ours is. And that's what having sovereignty is about, you know. <laughs> this yes. is sovereignty. That's, that's, that's <laughs> the thing that really gets me. Like, it, it, it boils my, my blood when I, when I hear any of them talk, any of the politicians who are failing to, like, give us... And it's it's not just in food, but, like, farming is, is like, a perfect microcosm of the entire issue. Because, like, yes, all of their arguments about sovereignty are accurate, but they are doing the literal opposite of giving us that, that back. And it, I, I, it, it it's just blows my mind that they can continue to get away with it. Because... Like even just that fertilizer plant, like, and and even the 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 failure to maybe subsidize British farming in a way that would would allow us to have like mo a lot of our food grown here. They, I I I just get so frustrated and angry about it because, e especially when we're talking about um, wanting to be like more. Um, put less uh, CO2 in the atmosphere. It's like it's a, the big headline policy for almost every government on the planet. It's like, sure. Yeah, until recently, until well, they've gone, until they've gone, become petrol heads again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I basically don't listen to, to what Rishi Sunak is saying because nothing he says will get through Parliament by the time he's voted out. It's just, all of it is, I think, just posturing and, and stupidity um, and, and a way to, to distract from how horrendous a job they're actually doing. Um, but um the the thing that gets me is like why why is it so difficult for us to to realize that like shipping food from around the world is where is using way more energy than than just making it here it's it, I, I but but also it's leaving us to a being held to ransom and and b once our food is, is gone, our food system, our food supply is destroyed, our food production is gone, then it means that people in Brazil can say, right, okay, Britain, we're going to charge you whatever we want because you, you need us more than we need you. And that's the reality. Um, so it is, it is incredible. And food nationalism actually ought to be used by the opposition. Mm -hmm. And it isn't. They're kind of trying to ignore it, or they're they're more wanting to play on the environment. But when 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 the chips are down, when people need food, when people are poor and they're hungry, I'm sorry to say this, the environment will come second. When you're hungry, you need food. And people don't react in a rational way when they're hungry. And it doesn't take long for that to cook. And that's what I see. And it might sound alarmist. I'm sure people think it does. But from my point of view, 
I just see it very clearly, and I saw it right from the beginning. Removing our ability to feed ourselves is just taking the, pulling the rug from under our feet, um, and it's inherently stupid and dangerous. Mm. Yeah, well, I think I think they they say that every government is three meals from revolution, um, or every country is three meals from revolution. Um, and I think I think what you're saying about um, undermining our food security and 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 the need for food nationalism is, is uh, food nationalism is completely completely accurate um so i wanted to go back actually to to a couple of things you said because um just for again for people um who are wondering um the uk were paying farmers um 50 to 100 grand to retire um and then you sort of mentioned um incentivizing environmental things in in order to yeah in, instead of like incentivizing actual farming so i was wondering if you could give like a little bit more detail on, on what's been incentivized yeah well I, i'm sure you've heard these buzzwords elms um the environmental land management scheme um which i likened to boris johnson's garden bridge it was a lovely sanding project which meant that all of the people who were involved in the nitty gritty detail of animal welfare and rights and, you know, and, and in the environment were on side with the government because they were like, this is amazing. We love the sound of this scheme because everything can be like a picture postcard view of the Cotswolds and we can have this lovely, you know, this lovely um, wind in the willows type reality. But ultimately to say, this is what we're going to introduce in the future but before we actually finalise what we're going to give you, we'll give you a picture book of it. But we're going to remove what you've got already with the hope that this will work. And we're still in that place. We still don't know what is coming. But they started to remove subsidies in England um, because don't forget we've got devolved governments who can decide how their money is, is given. And, and Wales and Scotland decided to continue with food subsidies. Um, for this parliament. And so it means that English farmers are even more <laughs> worse off in the UK and, and the EU as well on top of that because the food subsidies have been withdrawn incrementally and we're now in the sort of, in the last stages of that. But the new system still is unclear um, and people don't really know if they're going to bother with it. It's, it's not, it's, it's super complicated um, and the smaller you are, I think the less bothered they're, go the less bothered they're going to be do about doing it because you have to take land out of production to grow flowers or, you know, different schemes. Um, and it, it's just sort of like, then you still have to be regulated. And it's kind of like, well, what's the bother with doing that? I'll just farm without subsidies. I can have, you know, 300 cattle in my shed and I can perhaps pack more in there and because that's the way to make money out of food is to, to up the numbers. And then you're not controlled and then you can do what you want. And this is how standards drop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I, I think some of the stuff you're referring to is actually um, things that people, people might be familiar with um, from uh, Clarkson's farm from when he was talking about um, like leaving some stuff. Um, like leaving fields untouched um, in order to like get subsidies from the government, um, and which seems bonkers to me. I, I but that was the trope they used to attack CAP, wasn't it? You know, oh, mm. landowners are paid to, to, to not farm. And it's like, well, no, that's not true. Okay. It's not true. Um, but, you know, many farmers, and I can mean big farmers, many farmers have taken half of their land out of production in the last 12 months. Wow. Or if they haven't, I mean, I've, I spoke to a farmer recently in Kent. In fact, he was on a Channel 5 um, television program last week about food. Uh, he's grubbed his apple orchard. He provided apples to big supermarkets in Britain, Aldi's, uh, Sainsbury's um, and Little. And he's turned his model into just growing food for his farm shop. So he's producing a heck of a lot of less food. But he's then guaranteeing himself as sort of, you know, it, well, he's, he's invested in a, a model which, which then means that people who are wealthy and can afford it will buy from him instead of the supermarkets because this is the way it will go. There will be one system for people that can afford it and then people that can't afford it will be forced to buy the cheaper food from the supermarket. Um, and that is the direction of travel, which doesn't sit 
comfortably with those of us who believe in equality. We had food equality in the European Union. I mean, the other thing to look at is pet food. There's been more pet food imported of lower standards since Brexit. Our pets had the highest food quality as we did in the European Union. Now we've got more lower quality pet food coming in. And lots of us care about what our pets eat, more so than ever these days. Um, but people probably aren't aware of the fact that the, the, the cheaper food that's coming in now is of low quality. Oh, yeah. And I think people, people sometimes like only worry about cost when it comes to food. And, and it's really, really vital, I think, for, for like the health of a, like each individual and the health of the country more broadly when that you have like high quality food. Like we literally are what we eat. <laughs> You know, your body, um, like every cell in your body is renewed every, I think it's seven years. And that's all made up of the stuff that you're putting into your body. And and so if it's if it's of lower quality, like you're going to be made of lower quality stuff, like in a very simplistic way of putting it. But like, that's kind of the reality of the situation. Like, it's, But that's been the direction of travel, hasn't it? Since the 80s, since McDonald's started here and the fast food, act, the Americanization of Britain with food. And as I said, I was brought up by, by a family that cooked and knew. I mean, I was I was taught to cook from a young age and how to use food. And but these days, kids don't necessarily understand that. They just go and buy something from Greg's, you know, and pizzas. And I mean, I, it, it's that sort of thing that. I mean, it's fine to have a pizza occasionally. It's just that it isn't good for you every day or it's not good to eat a pasty and, and sausage rolls every day um, because you are better. And it's cheaper, actually, to buy a good joint of meat, cook a joint of meat once a week and live off that for, for most of the week with fresh vegetables. And um, that is much better for your health than eating fast food. But the incentivization through education has removed uh, cookery lessons. I mean, I, I'm of the generation that from a young age, I had cookery lessons as well as a family who taught me how to cook. And it's, it's almost as if they've wanted to end up with people not understanding food and politics. Mm, well, yeah. I mean, I, well, maybe it's not the same anymore. I remember I did um, home economics in school. We, we got taught how to cook some stuff. It was mainly desserts, actually, now that I think about it. But, <laughs> Sugar. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> Gones pastries that sort of thing um but uh, i wanted to to speak a little bit about something that we talked about um we spoke on the phone last week um was and and sort of relating to the thing you were talking about eu subsidies so so from what i from what i've gleaned from you the issue in a lot of senses is that um we have not imposed any checks or um yeah any customs checks or or like checks generally on food coming into the United Kingdom from from the EU, is there like charges that we haven't um, like uh, added as well, or is it just like customs checks? We the EU exporters don't have to jump through the hoops mm -hmm. that we have to okay. jump through. So for them, since Brexit, nothing's really changed. But for us, as soon as we Brexited this requirement for paperwork to export to the EU came in. And as a result, a lot of UK exporters, not just small exporters, Marks and Spencers are one of them, and they're on record. Um, in, in fact, if you look on our YouTube channel, I've got, I've, I have got the interview with the chair of, of Marks and Spencers um, saying exactly that, that it was so difficult they gave up exporting to Europe. So that's not, that's not a small company. That's a fairly large company. Um, the people that we actually sell our beef to here, have, they didn't even try to export to Europe after Brexit happened. So um, it's, it's just the most unpatriotic thing you could ever do. We have sanctioned ourselves to ensure there's advantages to the people that we thought we were leaving. Um, but also making us more reliant on them. Not only that, it means that uh, people producing illegal food can also send it through. Products coming via Europe from anywhere in the world. I mean, I know somebody who um, works in the food business imported some starch from India and there were no checks on it. It arrived in Portsmouth it, because it had been wrapped when it was damp. It was full of bugs. I mean, luckily he was... 
a good person. He, he destroyed it. It didn't go into the food chain. And he lost a considerable amount of money because of it. Um, but these are the kind of things that we've opened ourselves up to because we've gone into the world of de deregulation. Deregulation means risk, risk of things going wrong. I mean, <laughs> you know, we only have to look at the system in India to understand how different it is to here. Um, and I, I don't understand why anybody would want that. I, I've traveled a lot in the world. When I get, I love the Far East. I absolutely love it. But when I get back, I'm like, I'm so glad to be home because I know that when I'm buying a pair of Levi jeans, I know they are Levi jeans. When I'm buying something that's got a stamp on it, I know that it means it's credible. In the Far East, you don't know what you're buying. You know, you can get someone say, I'm going to take you off to this site. And then you get in a car and you don't know where the hell you're going. <laughs> Why would you want to live permanently in that sort of situation, particularly when we're not ready for it? We've been... We have been living in a, what, what they like to call a nanny state. But I like living in that nanny state. I like feeling safe in my home. Um, and, and that's why I've continued to, well, that's why I continue to live in Britain rather than choosing to live in the Far East. So. <laughs> yeah, and I think, I think the, the, the nanny state thing is like they, I think that there's, there's areas in which they have a point about like overregulation and red tape, but the food supply is not one of them. You know what I mean? Like wanting high quality food that is checked and that where like if you buy it, like you said, you can go, okay, I know this is high quality food and that I can trust it and, and be like, yeah, I can be confident that, that there isn't like extra chemicals, that it's not been poorly made or grown. There's not like uh, fertilizers that say we don't, um, we don't allow it anymore to be used, used on like the those things are not a nanny state that's that's we're it's outsourcing our personal need to check every item of food that we've got to um a body that's meant to check it for us and it's protecting public health and as we saw with covid people actually expect that and they want it we saw that with the compliance on covid and the and the the readiness to obey the rules to protect society and that is the welfare state and that's why i say confidently i know that the country believes that it's just that they've been confused by different tropes coming through from different places a lack of a strong me uh, message from from the opposition cowardice i think has, has also enabled this to continue further um but uh, the other annoying thing about the regulation, though, is that the sewage in the rivers, which is a massive risk, and it, we're on the Thames here, and it causes us huge problems. I mean, I can tell you that we know that bad bacteria is in the river. It's impacting the farm here. And, um, and nobody's really talking about it. Um, not enough. The risk to public health is immense. And yet, this is what will happen... Oh, sorry. Right. ...with our food... My battery is going down my coat. This is what will happen with our food in that um, we will have no control over it. And already imports from Brazil are up 67% since um, Brexit. Wow. 67%. And the government, DEFRA, recently reduced checks on Brazilian imports. There were extra checks on there because of health failures in Brazil. I mean, the situation in Brazil is you know, it's a cartel. It, it, it makes you, you know, it, it makes my hair stand on end thinking about it. DEFRA went over there, despite failures in the checks, they said, okay, you don't have to do, in the audit, sorry, they, you still don't have to do these extra checks. So we're taking more risks again with food imports from Brazil. Oh yeah, here it is. Wow. That's stunning. Last year. And again, the mainstream media has not reported this. No. Because I'm on poultryworld.net. I'm not on. I'm not on like the BBC or something. But since Brexit, Brazilian agriculture exports to the UK have risen by sixty-seven percent. Wow! Yeah. And how the BBC can actually claim to be speaking for the people, I don't know. Because all polling shows nine out of ten people want high standards. Mm. The government were elected on a manifesto to protect our high standards, and they're not doing it. And nobody's calling it out. And it is a tragedy. 
it's yeah it's awful so um one thing and yeah if your phone's down we can we can wrap this up um in a in a, in a few minutes here well i can tell you i can i can plug in my my thing i've just got you on my headset so it just might be a bit more echoey so that's, don't worry that's all right um so the the thing i wanted to ask about was something you sort of mentioned um there previously uh was about the the difference in quality of beef um between uh grass-fed and like corn-fed beef um i wanted to like ask you a little bit more about like what the difference is and like why why should, like people might be like listening thinking oh you know what's the difference it's just you know some some food that they're they're eating like why why is there such a big difference like why is it something we should be concerned about well as you said we are what we eat and a cow is meant to eat grass you know um, and uh, the beauty of, of, of grass-fed um, animals is that, first of all, we don't have to use anything, um, no petrol or diesel, to cut the grass. The animals do it for you in the growing season. And then they turn that into protein. And no energy is used to do that. So, yes, some of us, we have to bring our animals in in the winter here because we're very wet. Um, but we cut, we do grow some grass and we cut it and we silage it so that they're fed grass in the winter as well as in the summer. They're inside for probably five months, they're outside for seven. Um, some farms vary, if they're dry they'll be outside all year. So when you're feeding them grain it's because they're in feedlots and it's easier to feed them grain than to um, make silage. Um, and that's that's the the reality. But of course, to grow grain, a it's it's um, it's got to be uh, <laughs> you know, you've got all the complexities of growing the grain, to cut the grain, harvest it, and and then to sort of feed it to the animals. But you're feeding the animal a product that they don't normally eat. It causes actually more uh, digestion problems. They fart more basically and burp more, so it's worse for the environment. They're also in a feedlot, so they don't get as much exercise. We all know if we sit in a chair and we just eat unhealthy food, we get fat. Um, in some ways, in beef, you need some fat for flavor, but a mixture of the two is best. Um, so, um, but for us to be eating healthy food, leaner meat is better for us, mm -hmm. as we know with deer, you know, venison, for instance. So um, it, it's got less fat in it. Um, mm -hmm. Chicken as well has less fat in it. So uh, there's all of those complexities. But I think from an all-round point of view, Britain is a country which has a lot of grass. We're particularly good at growing grass. So I think it's 70% of our farmland is grass and can only grow grass because the, the, the soil isn't good enough to grow anything else. So we turn that grass into meat as sustainably as possible. And that's why if you look back in history, you only have to look back at Henry VIII and how much meat he ate. And we had the spice wars to make it taste a bit better. Ultimately, the one way of ensuring our food security in Britain is through livestock production, because that is what we can do sustainably and well. Everything else we have to do in a greenhouse using energy um, to make sure that we get food all year round. We don't, in, in India and Asia, they have a different climate. They can produce vegetables and fruits all year round. We do not have that climate here, which is why they have more vegetarians in India, because it, it, you know, it's, it's a different climate. Um, but ultimately for us, the, the way to ensure that A, our countryside looks nice, we have our hedges. I mean, I, I remember feed, reading a book by a Canadian falling in love with Britain because of our hedges and our hedgerows mm. and the look of Britain. And I, I remember reading that book and feeling so sort of like, I identify through the look of Britain. It's my identity and the fact that that is at threat, you know, because if you suddenly remove the livestock, then we won't need the hedges and you just have bigger fields perhaps for corn production. Um, and uh, because I think that's what will continue and we'll have less livestock and more will be imported from Brazil, which is then more Amazon clearance, uh, more mass produced food from the other side of the world. Um, which is worse for the planet. So all of the things they've been telling us to do, they're delivering the very opposite. And it makes absolutely no sense. And I just did a bit of Googling as well for people who are interested. So um, for 
grain-fed beef, uh, the composition of the fatty acids is uh, different. So grass-fed beef, beef has more monosaturated fat. Um, there's a better ratio of omega-6 to omega-3s. Um, it's more nutritious. There's uh, high levels of vitamin A and vitamin E. Um, yeah, and, and because of uh, corn-fed corn -fed beef, um, as you said, it doesn't, uh, they don't consume... Well, naturally they don't consume it and therefore cause a lot more problems and then they're pumped full of antibiotics as well um exactly and hormones yeah. and hormones and yeah and the other thing to consider and this is the horrific thing about um some of the big meat farming jbl is one of the companies and cargill is the other is the live animal exports you know there was a there was a recent uh, in, in the last few years sinking of a ship from australia i think it was of i think it was sheep um, going to Romania, and it's horrific. The conditions on these ships are horrific. Mm -hmm. And there's been several big uh, sinkings around the Pacific as well with, with um, cattle. The way the staff are treated um, and um, the way that these ships are run is horrific. And we don't know. I mean, there are, those, those imports could arrive here. Um, there's nothing to stop that happening. Um, and that, I think, is, is something that none of us want no. or want to be enabling. Because that meat, once it arrives here, if it's processed here, it can be packaged as British. Really? Wow, because it's, cause it's killed here and then packaged, we can, like, oh, my goodness. <sighs> it's so frustratingly stupid. Yeah, but there are some good sites, particularly on YouTube, which expose some of this huge farming. Mm. Um, there are some good documentaries, particularly on JBL. Um, there and there's a lot of British interest recommend? in that company. Do you remember company? the names? Um, uh, do you remember the, the names of some of the documentaries? Because I'll, I'll link them for people to watch, and I'll go watch them. I, I don't remember them, but when I when we finish, I'll, I'll email them to them, and you can put them up in the, in okay. the, um, in the chat afterwards. Um, but yes, the, uh, 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 it, it's, a, it's horrific, particularly for us who we love our animals here. You know, we, we care. I mean, I, I name a lot of our cattle here. They become, you, you know, we love all of them and we make sure that they have a good life. And when I see the way that, that it's farmed over there, it just goes against the grain here um, because we just don't farm like that. And I don't want to judge other countries for the way they farm. But this is Britain and this is our values and this is what I hold on to. And I feel that it's being taken away from us because of Brexit, which is meant to be British, but it's not British. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. And that's, yeah, as, as you say, it's not, it's not to say that like developing countries are, you know, I think you made, you made a very salient point earlier about how when people are starving, they don't care where their food comes from. And that's very accurate. Um, I think, and I think there's a, it's a figure. It's like once people are making $22,000 equivalent anywhere around the world, I think it's that figure. But there's a level at which they start to care about the environment where they live and the food, like the quality of the food. So until people reach like a certain level of prosperity, like they, they, they don't care, obviously. Like you, you, you wouldn't. It's like, well, there's food. I'm going to eat it because I'm hungry. That's, that's well, not... Well, you, you yeah. only have to look at what happened, you know, with plane crashes in recent times when, you know, there was a team of, a sports team crashed, didn't they, in South America somewhere. And of course, you know, they ended up having to resort to cannibalism to survive. The survival instinct is incredibly strong. Um, and and that, that is what, what will happen. So, you know, you can't, and, and a government should be thinking of this. This is their job, for goodness sake. You know, I'm thinking for them, really, quite frankly, um, but in, in terms of responsibility. But I don't find that those incentives are, are there at the heart of DEFRA. It seems to be a mess. You know, the, the group think within government is, is awry. I didn't know this about the... The wreckage of the plane was not located for two months and the passengers resorted to cannibalism. Wow, that's freaky. <laughs> You'd have to get real hungry to get there. I mean, well, yeah, you could look at Stalingrad. Um, people just yeah. get anything. Wow. 
Oh. Anyway, the last thing I want to ask you about. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry, let's let's go back to something slightly more positive. Than my, my grandfather, my grandfather, you know, a, he, he lived through uh, the famine in India in the war. So I suppose it's that that sort of well, you know, it's, it's in my DNA. You know, as I said, they survived. I've got, you know, my, my I'm a survivor from the Irish potato famine. So in my family, so it's that really, I suppose, is is intrinsic within my brain. And, um, and, and so it makes me focus on it. And, and okay, maybe I am being a little bit, you know, focused on it. But I would rather be overprepared than underprepared, you know. Mm. No, I think and and, and, and every, all of my fears keep, seem to keep sort of, all of my worst fears, as soon as Brexit happens, like, oh, this is not a good idea. This is our food security. And then, you know, COVID and then the war. And you're sort of like, oh, no, all the worst things are happening. And then, you know, the climate emergency is also getting a lot worse. So all of these things are compounding um, at the same time. And, um, and it's, it's, it's like, where's the, where's the grown-up sensible people? Mm. Why is somebody not thinking uh, sensibly? Yeah, and I think, yeah, <laughs> we, we used to, I, like, some, sometimes I wonder, am I, like, romanticizing uh, a period that, looking through rose-tinted glasses at a parliament that I never experienced, like I lived through. But I really feel like people use, like that the, our elected representatives used to have a bit more foresight and actually gave a fuck about about these things. And and now it, it's turned into like a a place for them to go to pad their CV and and get them a nice job in some sort of like industry. And get, get them on. I'm a celebrity. Get me out of yeah, here. Yeah, don't. Box. Yeah, don't start me on that because <laughs> I'll start swearing way too much. Um, it, it, yeah. yeah. Even even you know what really frustrates me is Jacob Rees-Mogg with his freaking TV show. It's like, don't you have better things to do? Don't you like you know? Or or um, David Lammy has his LBC show, and it's like seriously. Don't you have more important, like you're getting paid to be an elected representative of the people. You seriously telling me you've done all of the work that you could possibly do. And now because you finished everything, there's not one more constituency issue to deal with. There's not one more piece of legislation you could have better read. There's not one more thing you could have done. Now you've got time for your TV show. It really, really boils. I don't understand why we allow politicians to have extra jobs. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yes, the, the way that politicians have gone is they're demonstrably different to what they were um, pre the cameras going into Parliament, I think I would put it. And, and the sort of arrival of Murdoch on our shores um, is really what changed politics, sadly. Yeah. Anyway, so more positive things. Um, I wanted to ask, <laughs> lastly, about, um, about regenerative farming, because um, it's something that comes up um, quite a lot in, in discussions I, I have about about sort of food supply and um you you've mentioned our reliance on fertilizer from other parts of the world like ukraine russia and, and i always wondered like to what extent can um farming in this country be like wholly self-sufficient within its within itself well as i explained with the guy the farmer in kent who's who's grubbed his apple orchard um to to sort of become his own little shop I think that, that ultimately that's the way it'll go. We will have pockets of, and same with Clarkson's farm. In its all intents and purposes, that's the same thing, that you start sort of having a farm shop which feeds in local supplies for those who can afford to go and shop there. But that will be a lot more expensive than the supermarkets. And in many ways, this is what they kind of have in America and in Canada to, to a certain extent, that you have your mass-produced stuff in the supermarket, which is um, lower quality. And then to get something um, good, you have to go to these, these cute little farm shops. Um, and, and that is the direction of travel. But I, I prefer to live in a country where you know that everything, even the pet food, is of good standard. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, you know, near us, we have an organic farm shop here, which is actually is, is going to benefit in this new world. And it is benefiting even more because before Brexit happened, they, people could go, well, why should I shop there? Because I can get just as good food from Waitrose. Now it is changing because there's less good fresh food available in Waitrose at the moment. And people are like, well, go there because they've got greenhouses there. 
They can grow food all year round. It goes straight from the greenhouse onto their shelves. And there's not many places you can see that happening. And people will pay a premium now for that mm. to escape the bad food. So like and the... I, I don't think that's good. Mm. It, you know, even in Swindon, we've had a Taco Bells open up um, recently. <sighs> and, you know, it's full. Uh, I, I was quite shocked, um, and and that stuff is 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 poisonous. It's poisonous. Yeah. It, it, it really is. It's um, just not that good. Like, like you know. Do, well, it becomes as it is with the the other fast food. It becomes an addiction. You become addicted to it, mm -hmm. um, and it's cheap, and it just means that you keep needing to eat more of it, um, and that's the way. So they say they care about obesity, but they're not. They're causing more obesity. Mm. That's what I see. So it, it is the sort of topsy-turvy Tory messaging of saying one thing and delivering the opposite. Yeah, I mean, I'm not convinced it's actually cheap. Like the, the, that, that discussion always happens about how it's, people think it's cheaper, but I'm not sure that's true. Like if I, like I've been through periods where I've been unemployed before and I just go, right, okay, no takeaways, none. I cook everything myself. And that ends up saving me a lot of money. You know, if I don't like eat out and get fast food and stuff and I just cook everything myself, it, it ends up saving me a lot of money um and so i never i've never bought the the argument that it's cheaper it just requires more effort um yeah you've got to cook yeah yeah mm -hmm. which i really enjoy like i used to spend um months of a time uh, i used to spend five months a year running a bar in austria where i wasn't basically able to cook myself for five months because the the kitchen was like uh beside it was from for the restaurant that was owned by the same people so if i came down in the morning after running a bar all night the kitchen was open for service and i couldn't cook and then by the end of the night when i was done at 4 a.m the kitchen was cleaned down ready for the next day's service and i didn't want to go cooking at 4 a.m and then have to clean up after myself so i, I didn't cook basically for five months just other people cooked so now that i have the opportunity it's i, I really enjoy it but just the the organic farming thing like that feels to me because I'm I'm constantly worried about you know the the excess use of of um, chemicals and fertilizers and stuff for for our food supply. Like how how realistic would just like organic farming nationwide be? As it's a, not. It's not. Okay. So so what what well, what can no, we you, do? No, you'd have you'd have to have a significantly lower population. Okay. You know, after we had a green revolution after the war, you know, as these fertilizers and different farming methods came through, and it more than doubled food production. And it's no coincidence, therefore, that population in the world has dramatically increased because of healthcare advancements as well. It's not just because people are having more children, it's because people are living longer. Um, and eventually there will be a bottoming out of that in the West because many of us baby boomers, I'm just one, I'm just 60, um, have had less children. So, you know, my mother had five children her father had five children my grandmother on the other side had 14 children you know all of those things have changed um and so and you know lots of children don't have i mean on my in-laws side that they're, they're not having any children you know so things have changed a lot in, in that respect and the population is what you call a mushroom population in europe We've got a thin stem of younger with a, a top-heavy cap of, of older ageing people. Um, but it, it will change in, in time. But So I suppose going forward, if the population decreases, that there could be more scope for less uh, uh, chemicals. But there's always something new coming through. I mean, we, we've got a real fight with black grass, um, which is a very invasive um, grass weed, which which is impossible to get rid of, pretty much without glyphosate. Um, That's not so. There's always something new grass. coming through, or you know, there's a new insect or something that, uh, and you know, it's the same as we have with neonics. Everyone's oh, neonics are really bad; they kill the bees. It's never as simple as that. You know, mm. the neonics, in many ways, because it's a seed dressing, are actually a very short term chemical that's used on the dressing itself which gives us a, a healthy plant which means that you then use less sprays to protect the plant as it grows but everybody sort of gets in on one thing and doesn't see the bigger arguments around the other stuff mm. and this sort of protect the bees becomes louder than the critical thinking that's required for the rest of it no farmer wants to use pesticides 
but needs must. You know, there's no point planting seeds to ensure loss. Um, you know, that it, it, it's, as, it's as simple as that. Mm. And I mean, that can extend to even the environmental schemes. If you're planting flowers, is the same thing. So um, it, it, it is a nuanced, difficult thing. Um, but there are good advances coming through. You know, we, 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 there's, there's things happening all the time with technology to ensure that pesticides are lessened. Um, but to get rid of fertilizers, no, no way can we do that. And that is, organic farming means getting rid of fertilizers. Okay. Well, um, Liz, it's been very, very fun, very educational. Um, and yeah, I want to really thank you for your time. It's, it's been fantastic. Thanks for chatting. Thanks for asking me on and um, I'll send you the links as promised to the uh, um, farming uh, methods in Brazil and so forth. Yes, please do. Um, and is there anything else you'd like to plug just before we finish? Well, please follow our um, social media outlets on Twitter, YouTube and Facebook, Save British Farming and on Instagram. We're on threads as well, just because um, it's, it's hard to find time to keep up with all these things. And, um, yeah, but, you know, that would be great just to give us some support and um, keep spreading the word. We're, we're here really now just to communicate a message, to try and get the facts out there. That's what that's the purpose of, say, British farming. Mm. OK, well, um, I'll put the links for all that in the description as well. So, yeah, thanks. Thanks very much. Hey everyone, thanks for making it right the way to the end of the podcast. I love that you tuned in this long. Do me a favor, hit subscribe because 80% of you bastards are not subscribing, but you're watching my videos. See you next time.